I mentioned to you as we studied the story, the saga, the encounter of David with Nabal and Abigail, that it is perhaps my favorite saga or section of the story of the life of David. I come now to what is probably the most important message that I will be bringing to you out of David's life. I look around and there are, of course, several that could not be here today, and you know how it is. They're always the ones that need this so badly. But then the Lord knew what I was going to be preaching today, and the Lord brought you here to this place and this time. So could it be that the Lord intends this for you? Second Samuel Chapter 2, 2 Samuel 2, verse 18. 2 Samuel 2, verse 18. And there were three sons of Zeruiah there, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. The sons of Zeruiah is the topic that I wish to speak to you on today. Saul... And three of his sons have now been slain by the Philistines on Mount Geboa. It would seem to our eyes that all the obstacles have now been removed for David's nice and smooth ascension to the throne of Israel. But the road, as we will see in the coming messages, is still not going to be easy. It's not going to be an easy route. But we do find that David, at God's direction, after the defeat of Israel on Mount Geboa, in the beginning verses of chapter 2, relocates from the city of Ziklag in Philistine territory over to the city of Hebron, which is in the midst of Judah. Judah, of course, being the home tribe of David, David being from one of the cities in Judah, Bethlehem. Hebron appears to be sort of the unofficial capital of the tribe of Judah at this point in time. And you'll find that he makes overtures to the rest of the nation, especially to Jabesh-Gilead. Gilead was an area up to the north and east of Judah, across on the other side of the Jordan River. Those men, you remember, in had snuck into town in the middle of the night to the city of Bethshan, where they had hung the body of Saul and his three sons over the city walls. They had stealthily crept into the city, taken those bodies, and buried them. David commends these men and says, look, you know, I'm extending the olive branch. Now, the rest of Israel, of course, they have been David's enemies. They've been hunting David down like a dog. But David extends the olive branch to these people and by implication to the rest of Israel to unite themselves under his rule and under his reign. But Abner, Saul's commander-in-chief, refuses that invitation. Abner takes Ishbasha. The remaining son of Saul, and basically crowns him king over Gilead, over Ephraim, over Israel. So if you'll envision the situation, at this point in time you have two kings. One down in Hebron, in Judah, David. You have another king who is up at a place called Mahanaim in Gilead, Ishbosheth, Saul's son. You have two kings reigning over a divided kingdom. 
Now, I think you understand probably what's coming. This is a ripe situation for civil war, and civil war does, in fact, ensue. It is during this time that the Scripture officially, officially introduces us to three very prominent men in the story of David. They're introduced in our text as merely the sons of Zeruiah. If you do a little biblical research, you'll find that Zeruiah was not a man, was a woman. Zeruiah was none other than the sister of David, one of Jesse's daughters. And the three sons of Zeruiah are David's nephews, Hui, Dewey, and Louie. No, <laughs> not quite. Joab, Abishai, and Azel. In fact, we've already run into Abishai a little earlier, as you'll see in a few moments. Back when I was first seriously studying the life of King David, it was about ten years ago when I was doing a lot of this study, and in my studies I tend to try to get across to young men who are studying the Scripture to learn the material and learn it well enough that you can start looking for patterns, start looking for themes, and start looking for contrasts. And in studying the life of David, suddenly one day it dawned on me what a contrast these three men present to the life and character of King David. It, we've already pointed out this marvelous character that we detect with David. There's a sweetness about him. There is this humility. There is this meekness, this non-self-exertiveness. Not, he's not one to blow, as we say, toot his own horn. There's, do you not get the feeling that here's a guy I'd like to know? Here's a fellow that I believe I could get along with. Oh, my, he was a mighty man, a mighty warrior, a fierce warrior. The enemies of Israel trembled at the thought of going up in battle against David, and yet there was a sweetness about him. But I started noticing that in the story of David, as it's revealed to us in Scripture, that almost every place you find the character of David exhibited, this meekness, gentleness, this... This tendency towards peace rather than war, you'll find almost always alongside it these three boys coming into the picture, presenting the opposite side. Their character, their lives, a striking, striking contrast to the life and character and personality of King David. Let me give you a few examples of what we're talking about. And really, I'm sort of breaking into the middle here. You'll find this contrast beginning way back in the passages we've already covered, taking itself all the way to the end of the life of David. But let's go back for a few moments, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Look in second, I'm sorry, in 1 Samuel chapter 26. 1 Samuel 26. A couple of Sundays ago, or last Sunday it may have been, we looked at another time when David, you remember, crept surreptitiously into the camp of King Saul in the middle of the night. You remember as he's about to make that little foray, very dangerous journey, of course, to 
walk right into the middle of Saul's camp when he's 3,000-man army sleeping around there. Uh, David asked for some volunteers to go with him. Anybody willing to go with me? And look who speaks up. 1 Samuel 26, verse 6. Then answered David and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, brother to Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul to the camp? And Abishai said, I will go with thee. Here is the guy, you know, the guy in the services that volunteers for the, the suicide missions. You need somebody to be the commando, the Rambo. Here he is, Abishai. I'll go. He's gone home. And so indeed, he is the one who sneaks with David down into Saul's camp in the middle of the night. And you remember as the story unfolds, they come upon Saul laying there fast asleep. And there's that spear up there by his head. And it is Abishai who says to David, just give me the word. Just say the word. And I'm going to take that spear and I'm going to run him through. And I won't have to do it twice. And David says, no, you don't. We're not going to lift up our hand against the Lord's anointed. So you see what I'm saying? In that situation, it is Abishai, one of the sons of Zeruiah, that is presenting the other side, the, what we might say the tendency of the flesh. Certainly, David was made of the same stuff you and I are made of. And were it not for God's grace, if we were placed into a situation like this, we'd be the one that's over there grabbing that spear and running Saul through. But Abishai is the one who gives vent and voice to the, what we might say the baser urges of our flesh. Then we come to our text today in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Now, Mahanaim, as I mentioned, is sort of up to the north and east. Hebron is down in the south and west of the land of Israel. And we find that some of Abner's men come down to a pool at Gibeon. Now, Gibeon is sort of about, almost halfway in between, sort of, as we would say in sports, a neutral court. They met some of Joab and his men, David's men, and Abner and Ishbosheth's men meet at this pool up there by Gibeon. And we read the text that Abner and his men are over on the north side of that pool, and Joab and David's men are over on the south side of that pool. So they're sitting there staring at one another, these two forces, soldiers, of course, staring at each other, I'm sure staring at each other, trying to stare each other down, across this pond of water. Well, Abner calls over to Joab. Hey, Joab, let's, uh, let's send a few of the guys over to play for us. That's the way he put it, and, and to play... Um, Look at verse 14 of 2 Samuel 2. Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and play before us. Let's have a little sporting event. But, you know, I'm sure they just want, let's get out here and wrestle around a little bit. You send 12 of your guys over and we'll send 12 of our guys over. Well, they decided that's a good idea, a little entertainment, a little sporting event out here on the edge of the pond. Except that the guys that Joab sent over all had swords with them. And it may have been where the expression... We slaughtered the opposition today. <laughs> it may have been where that arose. They literally, every one of them, took a hold of their opponent and stabbed him with the sword, and the fight was on. The battle erupted. And we find as we read on that the men of Abner, Ishbosheth's men, are defeated in this battle. They're fleeing for their lives, and Joab and his men are hot on their heels. 
and especially one fellow, one of the three sons of Zariah. Back to our text in 2 Samuel 2, verse 18, you notice the last thing that is said in that verse is that this youngest son, Azahel, was as light of foot as a wild roe. And he was a track star. He's fast as a deer, basically. And we find that this fellow, Azahel, one of the sons of Zariah, decides that he's going to chase down O Abner, the commander of this opposing army. And Abner is running away as his men are running away. And he looks back behind him, and here comes O Azahel, hot on his heels. He keeps running and running, and O Azahel keeps gaining a little more ground. He's a fast one, gaining a little more ground. And Joe Joab begins to holler back over his shoulder, and he says, Now go, you, you go find somebody else to chase. Go turn aside to somebody else. To, you know, have a battle with them. Leave me alone. But he just keeps coming and keeps coming. Joab hollers back over his shoulder and says, I don't want to hurt you. How would I look your brother Joab in the face? But he just keeps coming and he keeps coming. And finally, as he gets close, Joab is running with a spear in his hands. And he takes that spear and thrusts it backwards and runs away as a hill right through the midsection. And we read of how Azahel lays there and wallows in his own blood and eventually dies. He just kept coming, kept coming. He just didn't know when to quit. You ever met anybody like that? You know that spirit? They just don't know when to stop. That gives you a little insight into the sons of Zariah. And then we read on into chapter 3. Abner, Saul's old commander of his army, uh, has fallen out with Saul's son Ishbosheth over a woman. Ishbosheth accuses him a little hanky-panky, and Abner turns on Ishbosheth and says, Look, I mean, I'm fighting your battles. I'm keeping your head on your shoulders, and you accuse me of this thing. And so Abner becomes disenchanted with Ishbosheth, and he begins to send overtures to David. Saying, David, I'm willing to defect. Reminds us back in the old Cold War, you know, when the general or somebody would defect from one side to the other. David, I'm willing to defect over to your side, and I can bring the whole nation with me. I can come and unite Israel under your rule. I want you to remember, this was the guy that was leading the army of Saul out there in the wilderness in the days that David was on the run, running for his life, his life so often hanging, as it were, by a thread. This was the guy, if he could have just got his hands on David, David's a dead duck. And yet, when he sends this message, David immediately extends, as we say, the olive branch. He welcomes him. In fact, we read how they have a meeting up here in 2 Samuel 3 and verse 21. He sits down and Abner describes his feelings, his heart. And David sends him away in peace, you'll notice. And he sends Abner to go try to unite Israel under David's rule. But there's this one slight problem. Joab, the oldest son of Zeruiah, isn't in this meeting, 
isn't anywhere around. And Joab, when he comes back to town, they begin to tell him what's happening. David has made an offer of peace to his old enemy, Abner. Abner is willing to defect over to David's side. Well, Joab sends out a message in verse 26 telling Abner to return. He's got something he wants to talk to him about. And in verse 27, And when Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly and smote him there under the fifth rib so that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. That fifth rib, you'll read it about it often. I hadn't quite figured out if that's five from the top or five from the bottom, but I tell you, either way you count, you're in big trouble. You get something between and the fifth rib. That's what they always went for, the fifth rib. Here, Joab calls old Abner back, want to have a little powwow with you, takes him aside and assassinates him by stabbing him in the back. David has extended peace to Abner, but not Joab. You ever known a fella that he just doesn't know when to quit fighting? Doesn't know when the war is over? Doesn't know when it's time to make peace? That's the sons of Zerah. On and on we go. You'll find a little later when David is fleeing Jerusalem, when Absalom, his son, is marching into town, that David goes up over the Mount of Olives down the other side, and one of the relatives of Saul comes out the front door and begins to pick up rocks. Now here, David and his mighty men are marching down the road in front of this guy's house. This guy comes out, you know about crazy nut, comes out of his house, picks up rocks, and starts peppering David with it. Now you talk about a bad day. I'm sure you've had bad days. I'm sure nothing that we've ever experienced can compare with the bad day David was having that day. Everybody is, they're getting off of his boat like rats off a sinking ship, defecting over to the other side, over to Absalom's side. Your own son is leading an army into town and going to kill you if he can get you. David, we read the account, is walking up the Mount of Olives, weeping with his head covered, walking barefoot. Morning as they go, fleeing Jerusalem for their lives, and then go down the other side and have this yo-yo come out and start peppering you with dirt and rocks. And oh, Abishai, <laughs> just say the word, and I'll be the last time he cusses you. I'm going to lop his head off his shoulders. And David says, "Let him alone. Let him curse." God hath bidden him curse, David. Let him alone. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and give me good for this evil that I'm enduring. And so this, can you imagine the sight? The scripture describes the marching on down the road with this idiot, Shimei, on the side of the hill, peppering him with rocks and dirt. When all he had to do was say the word. That'll be the last curse that ever came out of his mouth. What would you have done? What would I have done? Old Abishai, again, giving vent to that fleshly desire. Well, even a little later, you'll find that they go into battle at Mount Ephraim. 
David calls his troops together, divides his army under three commanders, one of them Joab, and says, now, if you find Absalom, I want you to deal gently with the boy for my sake. Deal gently with my son. Would you like to know how a son of Zeruiah deals gently with somebody? You remember the story. They were in the battle, and Absalom, apparently his hair got entangled. His head was caught in the boughs of that oak tree, and he hung there. And one fellow came running up to Joab and says, Oh, Absalom's hanging over there in the tree. And, Ab- and Joab says, Why didn't you kill him? He said, Oh, not me. I heard what the king said. He said, We're supposed to deal gently with that boy. And Joab takes three darts and thrusts them through the heart of Absalom as he hangs there helpless in that tree. That's how the sons of Zeruiah deal gently. A little later, after that battle, you see, Absalom also had a commander by the name of Amasa of his forces. David sends word to Amasa, your bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, may surprise you to learn that Amasa was yet another nephew of David through another sister, who was commander-in-chief over Absalom's forces. But when Absalom is dead, David extends the olive branch again to Amasa. Come on over to my side. All will be forgiven, all forgotten. Amasa takes him up on the deal. Would you like to know what Joab does? Joab sees his cousin coming into town, goes over to embrace him, says, Art thou in health, my brother? And grabs him by the beard and stabs him right under that fifth rib again. Do you begin to understand what I'm saying? Wherever you see this meek, gentle, humble, sweet spirit of David exhibited, you look around and you'll find one of those boys on the scene and they're doing just the opposite. Now, when you talk about people that were loyal to David, you can't beat these guys. Man, they love David. They are zealous for the cause of David. They are faithful to David to a fault. They're out there fighting David's battle, fighting for their beloved king. But my friend, one thing strikes you. They are nothing like David. There is opposite from David is night and day. They don't have the heart, the character of David. They're a bunch of murderous, vicious, backstabbing thugs. Well, what was missing? May I suggest that they just don't have David's spirit? Little s. They don't have the spirit, the heart, the character of David. They're on the right side. They're fighting for the right cause. And man is their heart into it. But they're vicious, cruel, hard men. Oh, there is an amazing statement of all the verses that that surround the life of David. This one shocks me, amazes me every time I read it. Second Samuel chapter 3. They have Abner's funeral after Joab is taking him aside privately to have that little chat with him that ends up with the sword stuck under his filth rib. 
They have Abner's funeral, and you read about David mourning, weeping for this man, this man who was the commander of Saul's forces. The man was going to kill him and get his hands on him. David mourning and weeping for this man. Look at what David says, Second Samuel 3, verse 36. 2 Samuel 3 and verse 36. And all the people took notice of it, the fact that David fasts and goes without food during this funeral. They took notice of it, and it pleased them, as whatsoever the king did, pleased all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it was not of the king to slay Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said unto his servants, Know ye not that there is a prince and a great man fallen this day in Israel? And I am this day weak, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too hard for me. This is the mighty warrior talking. The one that they sang the songs about. Saul is slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. The guy that Saul says, you want a dowry? I'll tell you what. How about a hundred foreskins of the Philistines? And David went out and killed two hundred of them. And that man says, these boys are too rough for me. They were hard. Vicious. They didn't know when to stop. Didn't know when peace was at hand. They knew nothing but fighting, killing, stabbing in the back. Is it possible that you could be on the right side and be moved by the right motive and be real and not a hypocrite but genuine in what you're doing? And still be wrong. You ever heard the old expression, this guy's so right that he's wrong? Just last Monday evening, in our study on Monday night, we dealt with a passage in Luke 9. Turn there just a moment. Luke 9, the disciples are really on a roll. One thing after another, they're letting out their old carnal character, they're arguing. Earlier in Luke 9 about who's going to be the greatest. You know anything of that spirit? I want the best seat. You know anything of that? I do. A little later in verse 49, John says, you know, we saw somebody casting out devils in your name, but he wasn't one of us. So we told him, stop it. Cut it out. He wasn't one of us. You know anything of that spirit? I sure do. How could God be doing anything over there? They're not one of us. And then the epitome of it all is that they come to this Samaritan village here in verse 51 on a journey. And they come to this Samaritan village, and the Samaritans, of course, were just as bigoted towards the Jews as the Jews were towards the Samaritans. And uh, this village will not receive Christ. In other words, time comes for them to uh, go in town and get a motel. Well, not exactly. Generally, you're going into town, somebody puts you up in their home. But no one would in this village. And it says, because, in verse 53, his face was as though to go to Jerusalem. They thought, well, you're just passing through. You're on your way up to Jerusalem. We're not going to help anybody on their way to Jerusalem. 
And so they wouldn't take Jesus into town, wouldn't give him lodging for the night. And look at verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, you remember he nicknamed them the sons of Boanerges, that means the sons of thunder. They had a short fuse. When, when the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? But, but he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. Spirit. Little s. I don't think Jesus is saying they're satanically possessed. But what he's saying is that your character is diametrically opposed and opposite to that of Christ himself. Look as he describes it. The Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You want to destroy. I came to save. Now, analyze the situation for a moment. Are James and John on the right side? Absolutely. I can't think of a better side to be on than Christ's side. Are they being moved for the right motive? Are they just doing this perhaps for a show? To impress the other disciples or to impress Christ? I don't think so. I think that they are honestly incensed and enraged at this insult that has been done to their master. Are they hypocrites? They just put on a show? Or are they sincere? My friend, I believe they sincerely want the fire to fall. And you say, well, okay, if they're on the right side, and if they're being moved for the right reasons, and, and if they're sincere and not hypocritical, then how can you be wrong? It's just one little thing. You know not what manner of spirit you're of. The action that they would exhibit would be completely opposite that which Christ desires to exhibit. You see what Christ is saying? There's not, you know, we sometimes talk about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. There's also a letter of the gospel. And a spirit of the gospel. It's not enough for you and I, my friend, to simply do what Christ tells us. While we are diametrically opposed to what Christ really intends. It's not enough for us to take that soldier's bag and walk the second mile if we're griping and complaining every step of the way. It's not enough to turn the other cheek to our enemy who strikes us if we're muttering curses under our breath all the time. Do you understand what I'm saying? That there is intended a spirit that becomes the doctrine that we say we believe. Well, how do we identify this spirit? I think you realize by now, Joab... Abishai, Azahel, they may have been on David's side. They may have been fighting his battles, but they didn't have David's spirit. How do we identify what is the correct spirit? Well, this morning in Sunday school, we already touched on one key, 
It is over in Philippians 2 and verse 5, where Paul writes, To let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Not paraphrase that is simply saying, think like he thought. Not just act like he acted, but think in your mind like he thought. Well, how did he think? He was God, a very God, but he turned loose of the perks of divinity, and he humbled himself, and he became a servant, and he bowed himself, submitted himself to God, his Father, even to the death of the cross. Now, that's how he thought. And Paul says, now you think that way. Let his mind be in you. In other words, the spirit of the gospel is no other than the spirit of Christ. It's to exhibit not just the actions of Christ, but the spirit, the thinking, the goal of Christ. We believe truth. We hold to truth. That's admirable. That's commendable. But my friend, do we then exhibit a spirit that is all out of sorts, all out of harmony with the truth that we say we believe? Let me give you an example. Christ is the judge of men. That's what Paul preached to the heathen up there on Mars Hill. There's coming a day in which there's a man going to judge this world, going to judge you, that man. There's a man, Christ, on that throne. You see people thrown into hell, I'll tell you who's going to do it. May not like it, but that's the message of Scripture. That man seated on that throne at the right hand of God, he's going to do the judging. But I ask you this question. Does he gleefully delight in the destruction of men? Is that what turns him on? Is that how he gets his kicks? Watch him as he comes over the Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem unfolds at his feet and he begins to weep. Oh, three times it's recorded that Christ wept. Once at the tomb of Lazarus, once with strong weeping and crying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then here, weeping over a city that was about to put him to death. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How oft I would have gathered thee as a hen doth her chicks, and you would not. Behold, the days are coming. Oh, judgment's going to befall you. But is he jumping up and down? Randy was pointing out last Sunday as we were leaving. I said, boy, I wish you had told me that earlier. I could have used that. But when David gets word that King Saul is dead, is he jumping up and down? Hallelujah, the king is dead. The king is dead. Oh, read. Read verse 2 Samuel 1. Glory of Israel has fallen on Mount Gaboa. Look at the beautiful eulogy that David writes for Saul and his son Jonathan. Yes, it was necessary in the counsels of God that Saul and Jonathan be taken out of the way. But David is not delighted. It's clear he loves them. It's clear when our Savior came over that rise and saw that city at His feet that on the one hand He knew it was going to be destroyed. And if I understand anything about the New Testament, the message of the New Testament, the message that got Stephen stoned to death was that that Jesus of Nazareth that you crucified, He's going to come and destroy this place. 
judgment was going to come. It was necessary that it come. But my friend, that wasn't what turned him on. It wasn't what he got his kicks out of. Christ is the Lord, our Master. But does he lord it? You remember that night that he girds himself with a towel and does the service that they wasn't about to do for one another, did the service of a slave, washed his disciples' feet, and said, do you see what I did? Now you do that for one another. You understand what I'm saying? There's an attitude. There's a character. Oh, yes, Christ is the sovereign Lord. But, oh, my friend, there is, a, there is an attitude that if that makes you, if the fact that you know that God is sovereign, if you know that it is grace and grace alone that is saved you, if that puffs you up, if that makes you proud, if it makes you vicious towards the souls of men, then, my friend, you know nothing. You've not got it. I love the doctrines of grace. I trust you know that. But Spurgeon himself said that the five points of Calvinism are five wondrous truths, but he says they're not five sharp swords to stick between the fourth and fifth ribs of our enemies. We don't use them to kill people. Destroy them. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? If you know that it is grace and grace alone, that amazing grace that we sang about earlier in our service. If you know that, if you know that it's nothing but God's grace that stands between you and that prostitute out there on the street, that drunk down there in the gutter, if you know that, then how can you personally judge and condemn? Oh, I know we can say that's wrong, but there's that attitude. I'd never do anything like that. I couldn't do a thing. My friend, you'd bust hell wide open if it wasn't for the grace of God. Oh, we say, we say, everything is in God's hand. We say that, don't we? We believe it. God works all things together for good. Well, would you please then explain to me why I get so upset when the car won't start? If I believe everything is in God's hand and it's all being worked for my good, why then do I get so upset when it doesn't go the way I think it ought to go? Would somebody please explain that to me? Do you understand? It's one thing to say, now this is truth, we believe it. It's another thing to exhibit the character and the spirit that adorns that truth. There's another passage in Philippians 1 verse 27 where Paul writes to the Philippians, Only let your conversation be that which becometh the gospel. Your conversation, old King James word, your way of life, your manner of living, let it be that which becomes the gospel, adorns it, beautifies it. Don't let your attitudes... Your actions deny the very truth that you say you believe. There's a spirit demanding. Steve, Wednesday night, I thought he was going to steal some of my thunder. Got over into Ezra chapter 8. Talked about the fact that they 
had this fast and this prayer for themselves and their little ones and all their substance. It is, it's one of my favorite passages, Steve. Not many people ever even pull that one up. I was sort of shocked and then, boy, I hope he didn't say what he, I hope he didn't go on. And he didn't. He stayed right where he's supposed to. But the situation was this. The Israelites, under Ezra's leadership, are about to make a long, treacherous journey back to their homeland. They're in Persia. They're in exile. They're about ready to go home. And they've taken up this big offering in Persia. They've gathered up a bunch of gold and silver, a bunch of money, and they've given it to these refugees, these captives, and they're going to let them go home. And it's been published throughout the Persian Empire that on a certain day, these small, unarmed band of refugees with all of this money, all this gold and silver, are going to be making their way right down this road here back to Persia, or back, back to Israel, back to their homeland. Do you understand why Ezra was so concerned? I mean, that'd be like getting the newspaper out today and says, now tomorrow, Steve Long's going to be, have a million dollars in his pocket, and he's going to make his way unarmed, unescorted down, down Jackson, up to about Hollywood, and then turn up here. I mean, that's like saying to ever cutthroat, ever crook in town, stick him! That's what Ezra's concerned about. And so Ezra proclaims this fast. And they begin to pray and seek God's face for his protection, his guidance to protect them and their little ones and all their substance. But the next verse says, For I was ashamed to ask of the king, horsemen, to protect us, because I had told the king, that the Lord's eyes are upon those that do good, and his face is against those who do evil. You see what Ezra's saying? Ezra said, I had stood before the king, and I told him how great our God was, how magnificent he was. And then could I turn around and say in the next breath, and by the way, old king, could you spare a few soldiers and you know, a little protection? In other words, Ezra is saying, I couldn't do it. I was ashamed. That's the words he uses. Ashamed. To deny the very thing I had preached to the king by my petition that he spare a few little soldiers to watch over us, make sure we didn't get hurt on our way home. I couldn't deny the truth that I just said with my mouth. I was ashamed to do it. Oh, my friends, so ought we to be ashamed. Well, I hope by now that you understand that there is a spirit that is contrary to the spirit of Christ the spirit of the gospel. I hope by now that you're getting a little handle on how you identify, how you spot it, what its hallmarks are. But I suppose the thing that ought to concern us most this morning is to ask this question, how do I get the right spirit? May I say just a real quick, easy answer, you get the right spirit, little less, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, big S. The right spirit, character, attitudes, is simply that which the Holy Spirit produces in us. It is what the Scriptures call the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You know, you know over in Galatians 5, you read about that. 
He has a long list. The works of the flesh are these. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, temperance. Would you notice that the works of the flesh are things that a person does? Adultery. The woman was caught in the act of adultery. But as you look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit, you'll find that these things are not so much what people do, but what people are. All right, Barry, let's get together tonight after midnight. Let's go out and meet somebody. Meekness is not so much what you do, it's the attitude you do. Let's go and commit temperance tonight, Brother Steve. It's the character. That's what the Holy Spirit is producing in us as the fruit of the gospel. Oh, sure, it shows itself in our actions, in our speech, in our deeds, in those righteousnesses that Brother Tim talked about this morning, but it all stems from the fact that the Holy Spirit is doing something in me, producing attitudes, making me into something I was not before. Well, you say, how do I get it? Jesus said the Spirit is like the wind. It blows where it wants to. You figure out how to bottle the Holy Spirit, let me know. When you figure out how to command the wind, I believe you can do that when you can get out here and command the wind to quit blowing one way and start blowing another. Christ is simply saying in that that the Spirit blows as He pleases. God chooses sovereignly where, when, and to whom His Spirit comes. We have an attitude, certainly in evangelism today, people get saved in time, they doggone please. Wrong. Paul says, when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb to reveal His Son in me. You get saved when it pleases God. That's when. But at the same time, does that mean that we tell sinners that need salvation, sit on your hands, go back home, sit in your rocking chair, just take it easy, take a little nap, wait for it to drop in your lap. If it's going to come, it's going to come. If it doesn't, that's no tough. You know, don't waste your time. Or do we say to a sinner, seek, knock, ask. In the same sense, my friend, are you serious about having this spirit? Then I say there's some things you ought to do. Number one, you ought to pray. You ought to ask God to put that spirit within you. You see, prayer arises because we cannot do what we ought to do. If you can do what you ought to do, quit pestering God, get up, go do it. But if you see, I cannot produce this, God's got to do it, then my friend, get on your knees before God. Furthermore, as I was illustrating to the children this morning, if it is through beholding the beauty, the glory of Christ, that I'm transformed into that image from glory to glory, and that's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3.18, if that's the process, doesn't it follow then that I ought to spend a little time looking at Him? Meditating on Him? Thinking about this one who laid down the... 
free exercise of his attributes and humbled himself. Doesn't it just figure? I mean, how do you get in a bad spirit? I know how to do that. Nobody appreciates me like they ought to. I'm not getting treated like I ought to. I, all i got to do is spend about 30 minutes in that frame of mind, and I can get myself in a bad spirit. Then it follow that maybe I then ought to spend a little bit of time thinking on these things, says Paul. Things that are pure, good report. Things that are lovely. Does it not follow that if I'm truly serious about being made like Christ, that ought to have my attention fixed right on His lovely face? Oh, it may not be that it's my hand on the spigot of God's grace. But if I'm serious, I put my mouth right under that spigot so if and when He turns it on, I'll get me a big mouthful. You get the picture? That's my responsibility. I cannot control the ebb and the flowing of God's Spirit. But my friend, I can put myself in the path. I can put myself in the place where God moves. He's going to run right smack down over me. I know we've all got our excuses. Yeah, Brother Mark, you know, you don't, you don't have to live with these people like I do. You don't have to work around the folks I do. And I've got my excuses. Well, I'm a champion for the truth. I believe the truth. Those folks, they're enemies of the gospel. Enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies the truth. Where did I ever get the silly notion that it was permissible for a follower of Jesus Christ to hate his enemies? Love your enemy. You see, in the tabernacle, not only did you have themes, furniture in that tent that reminded you of Christ, the candlestick, Christ, the light of the world, the showbread, Christ, the bread of life, the incense, he and his intercessory work, the, the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, his propitiatory work. But you may read in the law that there was a particular blend of spices that were used in the tabernacle and in the tabernacle only. These were Aramaic, fragrant things, frankincense, incense, those types of things. Sort of like the potpourri that Greg and Debbie make. A particular blend. They give you the formula there in the law for how it's to be mixed. What part of this you're to put in, what part of this. And it was forbidden on penalty of death for anybody else to have that smell, that mixture. In other words, when you went to the temple or into the tabernacle... You not only saw things that were unique, you smelled things that were unique. There was a smell, a savor, a fragrance, an aroma in that place. And when you left that place, at least for a little while, you uh, sort of smelled like the place. I always tell, uh, you know, when we walk in, been around somebody that's been around people that's smoking, 
Oh, it doesn't take long. Just smell it on. Well, you came out of the tabernacle. You had this aroma about you. You've been in the presence of this God smell. So it is that Paul writes that God makes the savor, we might say aroma, aroma, fragrance, the savor of His knowledge known by us. We are to reek with the fragrance, the aroma of Jesus, His Son. So that when we're around folks, they say, what is that that's unique? I've never smelled anything like that. Now, I hope you understand what I'm saying. They get around me and they sniff and they say, I've never smelled anything like that. And they're not talking about that. I'm talking in a spiritual sense that the people with whom we come into contact ought to perceive there's something different about us. It's the smell of Christ. It's His Spirit. His character. And there's nothing else in this world quite like it. Well, may that be true of you and me this morning. Let's pray. Help us, Father, to exhibit, to manifest the Spirit of our Lord. Lord, may we understand that it's more than just doing right things, keeping a bunch of rules. It's more than having our hearts zealous for His cause. Father, it involves an attitude, a motive of May we, Father, manifest to the world around us a character that on the one hand loves your word, loves your truth, and will not compromise with it, but on the other hand have a heart of pity and compassion toward the perishing souls round about us. Lord, may that be true of us as it was of the Master at the very city, Father, that he himself would judge is the city that he wept over. May we exhibit the character of a God who says he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn and repent. Father, may that be seen in us. Lord, may it be seen in what we say, what we do. May it be seen in how we act and conduct our lives. May it be David, his heart, that we see in us and not the sons of Zeruiah. Save us from sin. Save us from error. And Father, save us from ourselves. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.